Thank you, Dr. Billy Lyle. All right. It really is an honor to be here with you. I am tremendously encouraged every time I interact with your pastors and the leaders here. I always have my faith stretched and encouraged. I want to explain for just a moment Pastor Norman's role in my life. Uh, Pastor Norman, where are you? I know you're here somewhere. Okay, you're at the soundboard today. All right. <clears throat> He's ready to turn it down if I say something that embarrasses him. <clears throat> Your pastor is legendary for going into every nation churches all over the world and always has a funny story about the host pastor that makes them want to crawl under the chair. So he's back there in case I do that, and he will turn the sound down. I do want to say this. Uh, you may or may not know Pastor Norman serves as the chair of our Every Nation Oversight Team. And what that means is, ultimately, he's my boss. And I am so grateful for his oversight in my life. We have a team that oversees me, and their job is to assess how I do my job, my ministry, my life. And I look forward every year to the sit-down with Pastor Norman and that team where they tell me what I'm doing well, what I need to do better, what I need to do less of, what I need to do more of. And I am tremendously grateful for his leadership in my life. I think it makes me a better Christian, a better husband, a better dad, a better preacher, a better minister of the gospel because of the investment that your pastor has into my life. So, Pastor Norman, thank you for serving me the way that you do. And I also, I think it's good for you to know that your leaders have leaders. And that in every place, we have to create systems and, and structures so that we aren't leading alone. And I know we do that all over every nation and do the best we can with that so that we, uh, we do have uh, input and accountability. So um, I was asked by Pastor Norman before I preached the word and by Pastor Billy to give an update from every nation around the world. And if you can... Um, um, Put the first, I'm um, sorry for the confusion here. Am I, is this the same thing behind me? Exactly the same. All right, I don't need to turn around. All right, good. Okay. <clears throat> um, Pearlside is a part of a global family of churches, as you know. We have churches we've established in 80 nations. We've got about a dozen more nations where we have church plant teams in place, where we have people, sometimes it's a campus ministry, but it's not yet a church. I will be in two of those nations in May, in Egypt and Jordan, where we have disciples, we have groups, we have people, but they're not yet churches, and we're trying to figure out what a church looks like in nations like that. But we have churches established in 80 nations, and what I love about this graphic is we have 1,076 campus ministries around the world. We have more campus ministries than we have churches. And we are always, we have always been about the next generation because that is the future, not just of the church, but of the nations. And often we will start with a campus ministry, sometimes high school, sometimes university, and that grows into a church. And uh, I can, um, so we see that happening all over the world. Hopefully many of those uh, 1,076 will evolve and grow into churches because eventually students graduate 
You know, some people are cram four years of education into eight years, so it takes them a while. But eventually, they're getting and they're uh, they're getting out in the community. So, okay, next one. I want to give you introduce you to some of our newest churches in the world. Uh, just in January, I was in Panama City, Panama, not Panama City, Florida, but Panama, where the Panama Canal is, uh, tucked between. Colombia in the south and Costa Rica in the north of Panama. This is our newest church plant. It just opened. I was there for the ribbon cutting. We are inside of a mall in near the university campuses, and our youth pastor from the Philippines, Rico Ricafort, some of you know Rico, some of you, you have sent missions teams to work with Rico. Uh, he moved with a team from the Philippines uh, along with one Peruvian and one American who is also a Filipina, but born and raised in the States. Uh, they moved there, learned Spanish, and launched the church in January. So encouraged to see what God's doing in Panama. It's our first every nation church in Central America. Okay, here's another brand new church. So these are two of our newest churches in Panama. And this is in Benin, West Africa. It's a small nation right next to Nigeria. We have about 30 churches in Nigeria. This is our first church plant in, um, in Benin. It's a French-speaking country. And I want to take you into, this was our first Sunday service about a month ago. All right, so I want to take you in right now. Hit the video. We're going to go into the worship service in Benin in West Africa. <laughs> Just the temptation to jump up and dance right now, okay? How about that? Very first Sunday service. Obviously, there's been discipleship going on, there's been outreach going on, and when you reach a critical mass, then gather together for worship. And what I love about that is it's, it's, we're taking, respecting and honoring the culture and the art and the expression of the people and bringing the gospel into that instead of trying to morph that into an American or a Western type of worship, and we always want to go in with that type, and so we're seeing God move all over Africa. I don't know if we, um, if we're live streaming, Pastor Billy, we don't want to show that China video. I don't think we can do that. We need to. I have a, I have a video, a 20-second clip of our worship service in one of our Chinese churches, but since it's streaming online, I don't want to expose their faces to anyone. But I had one similar to that, but it was all in Chinese. It was pretty cool. And we have explosive growth happening in our Chinese churches. I'm privileged to be on a call once a month to mentor our director of Every Nation China. And we're now, uh, we're, we're spreading rapidly. We're in about 25 cities now. And honestly, when I get off of that mentoring call every month with my dear friends in China, uh, I feel so inspired and I, I feel mentored, okay? I, I, I learn more. I'm going to, I hope this is helping them because it sure helps me when I spend the time with our Chinese leaders. But again, I don't want to uh, make that public on, on this. So uh, let me go to the next one. Skip the China one, and then we'll go to Ukraine. Can we skip ahead? Okay. Um, back, yeah, yeah. What was the one before that? Did I skip one? All right, yeah, let me mention the seminary. And um, uh, we did start three years ago, um, actually about six years ago, started working on because of our, the importance of leadership development and especially theological development. And 
So we have a, so we've launched, um, I guess we, we started the work six years ago, but three years ago launched our seminary. And as you see on there, we, we actually limit our intake each year to about 34 students. Right now we have 36 coming in. It's a three-year program, Master of Arts in uh, Theology and Mission. And we now have um, 99 students from 34 nations. This semester that's starting now, we have new students from nations that we've never had uh, students yet. Nepal, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Saudi, Kuwait, uh, Ghana, and Nigeria, which is, uh, we've added those nations to, we have churches in all of those, but we've added those to our seminary. And I was talking to Pastor Billy last night about his doctoral work, and my wife and I talked about it when we got back to the hotel, and I just told uh, him in front of Pastor Norman and Pastor Paris, I said, Billy, uh, one, please, I'm pleading with you, I am doing everything I can, now I'm going to say it in public so you have to do it, you have to write that book and uh, make it available because when you do a dissertation, it's academic writing and nobody reads that stuff except the committee decides whether you use enough uh, end notes to get a degree, uh, but it's so useful for everyone else that let's get that out of academic language into normal people language. And um, I'm, I can't wait to read the book that you're going to write. But also, I uh, said, I've got to pull you in to help teach relational discipleship in our seminary. So I'm going to be pulling on Pastor Billy. Uh, I'm confessing that in front of all of you. I am going to somehow uh, steal some of his time and get him in front of our seminary students to talk about the things he's researched and become really a, an, an expert in in terms of relational discipleship. So, Pastor Billy, I'm, now I'm really making it difficult for you to say no because I'm not just these people, but now this is going out, all the online people. So um, I'm just telling you, I'm, Norman, you can uh, tick that. You can, you can downgrade my uh, appraisal this year for me doing this. So it'll be worth the trade-off. Um, Okay, uh, that's the seminary. Um, let's see, go, what else do we do? And I, I, it's a joy for me to teach. To, I, I get to teach pastoral theology this summer and uh, helping our pastors think about what is the role of a pastor in, in the world today. So I look forward to that. This is, uh, I want to introduce you to these two people. Um, this is Olik and Natalie. They are our Every Nation directors in Ukraine. We have seven churches in Ukraine. And I've been in his church, and I've been in his home. It's a fabulous church, one of our, uh, really a, a huge church for that part of the world. And I was, uh, we were praying for them. This picture was taken in Istanbul, uh, Turkey, about five months ago. We had a global leadership summit there strategizing some of our next nations we're going to. And I want to thank you guys. Some of you are aware of this, some of you are not, but... Um, Every nation churches all over the world, when the war broke out in Ukraine, started sending money. We just put up a website because people went, hey, we want to give money to help refugees. And so we set up a website, and just over $1 million has been distributed through that uh, to, for humanitarian aid and serving refugees that are fleeing the war zones. And I want to thank you for that because I know some of you have given to that and some of the churches have given to that. And as the money comes in, we send it directly to uh, uh, Pastor Oleg and his team. And also in Poland, I was with our church in Krakow, Poland, about this time last year. And our churches in that part of the world, in Germany and Austria and Poland, especially Poland because it borders Ukraine, have taken in hundreds, probably thousands of refugees at this point, feeding them, taking care of them. Uh, at one point, our whole church, which was a little bit smaller than this area, it was a, it was a dormitory, not even a dormitory. People were just sleeping, refugees sleeping all week on the floor 
and the churches were opened up and people in the homes of the people. Um, so I've got a little clip from Pastor Oleg saying thank you for what we're doing. He's, he goes down to the front lines. He's got 26 of his church members who are in the battle zones and the war zones right now that uh, are people that he led to the Lord, baptized, and did their weddings, and they're, they're, they're our, our church family, uh, part of every nation in Ukraine. And so here's a little message from Pastor Oleg. Hi everyone, I'm Pastor Oleg Savchak from Ternopil, Ukraine, and I want to say thank you very much for your prayers, for your financial support. Because of you, we can preach the gospel across all of Ukraine and bring people humanitarian aid. again that you uh, stay together with us because of you we can do more and more god bless you so much i think i have one more uh thing that's happening in the every nation world i think it's the last one can you click that i appreciate pastor oleg in there uh skip that one no time all right to me, most important thing, most exciting thing, the most amazing thing happening in every nation is my family. Not for you, but for me. Um, and uh, I, I know you believe that here in this church, that uh, family is the top and family matters. And this is just to introduce. My wife is here. Deborah, would you stand? We just, have just celebrated. Um, we have just celebrated 80 years of marriage. I've been married to her 40 years. She's been married to me for 40 years. That's 80 years of marriage. Um, and we have three sons, three uh, wonderful God-given daughter-in-laws. And can I even say it? We have eight grandchildren. But we heard yesterday, uh, my, I got a call from Jane, our two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. And she FaceTimed me yesterday. And then her four-year-old brother got on and looked at us and said, there's a baby in mommy's tummy. And so then her parents came on. So we got number nine on the way. So that's uh, really exciting. And, um, and truthfully, my, a lot of my grandchildren look more like you than they look like us. I have one uh, Japanese daughter-in-law and one Filipino daughter-in-law. And so uh, I think my grandchildren would look, look at home, feel at home here. Uh, so... All right. Again, you are a, this church, uh, Pearlside, is one of the most generous churches in all the every nation world giving to world mission. So I want you, everything I just talked about, that's just a flyover of a few things happening in every nation, and you are a part of that. You have given so generously to everything that we do around the world. And I want to say on behalf of the, whether it's the refugees that are being served in Ukraine, whether it's, the, whether it's the Chinese churches, whether it's the new church in Panama, whatever is happening out there, on behalf of all those people who are being served by your generosity, thank you, thank you, thank you for the way you 
give so generously and the way you send mission teams. You guys are one of the most amazing mission-sending, mission-giving churches that I've ever been involved in. So give the person next to you a big hand for the way you guys are impacting the world. <clears throat> okay, I have a one-verse sermon today. We're going to look at one Bible verse. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, and I want to answer the question, why? Why are we even doing this today? Why do we gather and have a worship service? There are a lot of them here. I think there's five here today. Is that right? There are five of them today, four of them today. And I am forever grateful, Pastor Billy, that you didn't, that you didn't invite me to the 7 o'clock one. Um, I'm not an early morning person. I mean, this is about as early as I do. But um, why do we do this? Why do we do refugee ministry, as I mentioned? Why do we do church planting? Why do we do campus ministry? Why do we do small groups? How many of you are part of a small group, a discipleship group? I mean, why do we do that? Uh, what, what, what is that about? Why do we, we have a connect uh, time and you, where you wanna, you're new in the church and there's, there are classes going on behind these walls right now. When I was walking through, there were, there were, I think it was a membership class or a new believers class. Why do we do that? Why do we feed the hungry and serve those in need? Why? How do we know if what we're doing even matters and if it's successful? What is the measure for that? Is it how many people show up? What is the measure for today, whether this was worth doing, what we're doing here this morning? Is it how many people are here, or, or is there something more eternal than that, something with more substance than that? Why? I hope today this one Bible verse this one statement from the Apostle Paul will help us see and give some why to it. Um, when my children were little, my wife and I tried. We didn't do it very successfully, but we tried the whole family devotional thing. But my youngest son was such a, um, uh, such a comedian at four years old, he would get kicked out of family devotions on a regular basis. And... Um, his son is just like him, Jonathan Jr., and so we go, ha, see, you, you, you sow, you reap a hundred times. But why do we do those family devotions? Now we do it with our grandchildren. Why do we take the time to do the things we do? There's a simple answer to that that I think will frame really everything that we're trying to accomplish. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, I'm reading from the ESV. My little children... For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Let's read that again. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. This is the word of God. May the Holy Spirit help us understand and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name. Now... This phrase, Christ formed in you, is loaded with hope, with faith, with answers to everything we do in church and hopefully as Christians in life. Christ formed in you. You ever tried to change someone? Parents? How many of you are parents? You've got children. If you're like... Every parent I've ever known, you've tried to change some people. How many married people ever tried to change your husband or wife? Did it work? Probably not. If it did, it really didn't. 
But this verse gives us all hope for the change that really needs to happen that we are powerless to do. How many of you wanted to change something in your own life? Whether they were attitudes or life patterns or, or sin patterns or ways of speaking or whatever it is, but God, this needs to change. This verse, this phrase, Christ formed in you. I hope if nothing else, you walk out of here with the hope for change. In your own life, in the lives of your loved ones, I hope it sets you free from trying to change people, even though the change needed is valid. Christ formed in you. Sorry to keep drinking this. My throat is, I, I don't usually carry liquid beverage to the pulpit. I mean, I never do this, but my throat is uh, not cooperating with me. Nothing like hot tea to fix that. The hope of change. Now, this, this idea here, Christ formed in you, and the way God changes people. When we think of change, there are two words that we're not talking about. Biblical change, Christian change, spiritual change is not conform. Conform, when something conforms, it's outside pressure. And, and you, you can see sometimes, uh, we think about it, especially in the teenage years, but I think it applies to all of life. I think we do it for our whole life. You, you, we know people. Sometimes it's us. We act one way, maybe in this context, around church people because there's a pressure, there's an external pressure to behave and act in a certain way, and then we get around another group of people and we act in an entirely different way because there's external peer pressure, cultural pressure to think and act and talk and say things we would never say here at church. But we get in this context and now we have conformed to the culture around us and to the expectations around us. That's not real change, right? But we all experience that. We all have this change based on the pressure. It's like jello. You know that your grandmother would make it Thanksgiving or Christmas and you get a jello mold. Maybe it's a turkey or a snowman or a Santa Claus. You put the jello in and it conforms. It shapes itself around that mold. And, and what we're told in scripture is don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And so when we think about real change, not conformity. And so when we, sometimes we make our children or our grandchildren or our spouse conform to a certain behavior, but it's not permanent when it's external pressure. And in discipleship and in small group leadership, we see people who come into our group and boy, we can see pretty clearly some things that need to change, some destructive and some relational, uh, relational hurting patterns. But it's not the external pressure that brings real change. There's something else. But there's another thing it's not, and it's not reform. So when we think of change, we sometimes think of conforming to something, and then we think of reform. Reform is, I remember growing up in high school, there were, there were when I was growing up, there were people who really were troublemakers and got in a lot of trouble. They would be sent to a reform school. And, and, and I think sometimes reform, we try to reform ourselves. Sometimes it's, if I can just try a little bit harder. How many of you have ever been there? Just, if I can just try a little harder, I can change. But again, that rarely works and rarely lasts. 
So it's not, when we talk about Christ formed in us, when we talk about the hope for real change, it's not conform, it's not reform, but it's transform. And this word right here in our scripture in Galatians 4.19, it says, until Christ is formed in you, that word formed in the original language is where we get our English word metamorphosis. You see that morphosis part, that, that formation part, metamorphosis. And that's really, we could have translated it that way until Christ is metamorphosed in you. Some of you go, metamorphosis, I don't, I don't know. Um, what, what are we talking about here? Go back to middle school science. And there are two categories that experience metamorphosis. There are amphibians, not all amphibians, but they're amphibians. And uh, you see that they go from, from these gooey-looking egg things and become a tadpole, and then suddenly uh, in this metamorphosis, we have a frog. It looks something and acts entirely different than the tadpole. The tadpole lived exclusively in water, and now we have this frog that is entirely different. That's a metamorphosis. It's not, it's not a conformity and it's not a reform. It's a metamorphosis. It's, it's what we mean here by form. Also, certain insects. So we all understand the caterpillar transformation into the butterfly. But there's a third category you didn't learn in science of metamorphosis. They're amphibians, they're insects, and Christian disciples. All right, and that's what this tells us. Paul says, I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until a metamorphosis happens in your life, until you are changed from a caterpillar to a butterfly, until you are changed from a tadpole to a frog. That's our dream for you, that you can turn into a frog. <laughs> if you wonder why we're doing what we're doing, we're hoping. What, is, what are we here for? Why am I preaching a sermon? It's with the hope that some kind of metamorphosis, some kind of transformation, some type of Christ being formed in you. When we do a small group, it's not just to encourage people, it's to transform people. When we do refugee ministry, it's not just, yes, we want to feed them. Yes, we want to help them get settled. But we also want to see Christ formed. We want to see them go from a, from a caterpillar to a butterfly, from a tadpole to a frog, from a sinner to a saint, from a rebel to a child of God. And in leadership, we want to see them go from a fish to a fisherman, from a seed to a farmer. We want to see transformation. Everything we do in church, everything, is so that Christ would be formed in you. Not so that Pearlside mission would be formed in you. Not so that the every nation vision would be formed in you. But that Christ would be formed. And that metamorphosis would happen. So how does this happen? How does real change happen? How does this formation in the inside happen where we get past trying harder and trying to do better because Christianity is not a religion of do better. If the message of church is, man, I went to church and boy, I, I, I just really have to do better, that's not the gospel. It's not that we try harder so we can do better and be better people and maybe God will like us more. There's something transformation, transformative that happens on the inside. How does it happen? 
There are three words in this text, in this short verse we're looking at, three words that tell us how it happens. The first one is the word children. The Apostle Paul could have used any number of words, but he picked the most relational word he could ever imagine. He picked the most relational word I think that we have today. Um, I was talking to Pastor Paris before the service, and I, I was congratulating him on, um, on uh, I mean, they've had children, foster kids, and, and, and I know there's a love for the children that they've been serving. And I said, but when you held your son first time, how did you feel? What was that? And it was, it was we were talking, walking in, and, and, and I, I, entered, I said, this is the happiest and the tiredest man in, in, uh, in the whole church right now. And probably the happiest woman and the tiredest woman as well. And because children, there's something that can't be described when you hold your firstborn child. Now, I don't love my firstborn any more than I love my thirdborn or my secondborn, but there was something, unless you've done it, it's, it you can't even explain it. It's, it's, and so we were chatting about that. He was trying to chat, but it, it just, there's no words. It's the most relational concept there is, a mom and a child, a dad and a child. And, uh, and, and Paul had no children. He wasn't married. But he knew culturally this is the most relational concept that there is. And so he addresses not my disciples. He doesn't say my students. He doesn't say my fellow workers. He doesn't say my staff member. He doesn't say my leadership team. He doesn't say my fellow church members. He says my little children. My little children. How does transformation happen? How is Christ formed in us? It is starting, the starting point is relationship. To use Pastor Billy's phrase that so impacted me last night at dinner, to be in a relationship we are, where we are known and loved starts a transformation process of Christ being formed. There is no Christ being formed in our lives apart from relationships. So as you are engaging your neighbors with the love of Jesus, with the gospel of Christ, that relationship you're building is starting a formation of Christ in their souls. It's relational. It's not simply mental. He picks this relational word. Secondly, how does Christ formation happen in anyone's life? Second word is again. He says, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. Again, it happens not just through relationship, but Christ's formation happens through repetition. Again means I'm doing it again. Paul used this word constantly. He would say, look, it's no problem for me to write the same thing again. I know I'm preaching the same thing I preached last time, Paul, but I'm doing it again. I'm writing the same thing again. I am, I am committed to repetition what Paul's saying. Because it's repetition that changes us. You ever heard the phrase, practice makes perfect? Practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. And if, you're, if your golf swing is wrong and you practice it over and over and over, it makes something that's wrong permanent. If your tennis stroke is wrong, you practice it over and over and over, and you do it wrong, it doesn't make it perfect. It makes it perfectly wrong. <laughs> Repetition makes things permanent. So let's repeat the right things. 
Christian philosopher James K.A. Smith. Some of you have read him, some of you have not. Please read him if you haven't. He uses the phrase, the things we do, do things to us. The things we do, do things to us. Everything we do is doing something. It is forming us. If we scroll constantly, that is doing something to us. If we live on social media, it is doing something to us. If we go to the gym, it's doing something to us. My philosophy of going to the gym and running and stuff like that, not everybody agrees with me. But I see it like a car. The more miles you put on a car, the more you wear it out. That is not good. So I do my best to keep the miles off of this car. I am not picking up heavy things that are fine where they are. We'll see how this turns out in the end. Some of you people, you've got 500,000 miles on your car, all this stuff that you do. The things you do... Do things, I know some of you are shocked, going, you don't go to the gym, really? (laughs) Things we do, do things to us. We repeat those things. It's why I'm always an advocate for singing the same songs at church, if they're good theologically. Uh, I'm always trying to get our music directors, can you just do that song long enough? so that I can sing it without the words on the screen because the singing of it does something in my soul not the same five for the whole year but too much change it's why some of you grew up Roman Catholic anybody grew up Roman Catholic or Episcopal I mean were you like me like a CEO Episcopal Christmas Easter only or were you like a real how many of you were real Catholic or real Episcopal I mean you, I mean, you, went, you were there okay You did the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. You did the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. You did the exact same words for communion every Sunday. Doing that, those words in the Apostles' Creed did something to you, and it's hard to shake that after a lifetime. Repetition is formative. How is Christ formed in us? By repetition. Reading your Bible every day, getting up in those habits, and you read it, it may be, I didn't get anything out of that. The the heavens didn't open. I didn't get a revelation from God. I didn't get chicken skin. I, I just did it. But you know what? Something's forming in you. Going to church. I didn't get anything out of church. Yes, you did. Repeating the right things is forming Christ in you. So whether you feel it or not, I don't think that tadpole gets up and goes, you know, I didn't feel really much change. I don't feel any more like a frog today than I did yesterday. I'm not sure this is working. Sometimes you feel it, sometimes you don't, but the repetition forms us. If we repeat the right things, it's forming Christ in us. If we repeat the wrong things, it's deforming something in us. The third word, he says, my children, it's by relationship. I'm again, it's by repetition. And he says, I'm again in the, in the anguish of childbirth until, until, in my mind, means a resolve. I used to run track in another life when I was a young man. <laughs> Don't worry, I wasn't a, I was a sprinter, so it was really short. <laughs> you run until you hit the line. You don't run until you get tired. 
You run until you cross the line. There is an until. But this until Paul is talking about is a whole lifetime, until Christ is formed. That's not a thing, okay, I already got Christ formed, now I'm doing something else. No, that goes from the moment we meet Jesus until we die and we have a glorified body. There's an until, there's a resolve, there's a don't quit. The relationships form Christ in us. The right relationships, the repetition of the right things form Christ in us. And the just refusal to quit. You ever wanted to quit? When people want to quit their Christian life, they want to quit their spiritual habits. They want to quit all of this stuff. I, a lot of people have wanted to quit. Maybe they got offended. Maybe, I don't know, they got discouraged. Just whatever. I just wanted to quit. Quitting is okay. Here's what I tell them. You want to quit? You want to quit this Christian life? You want to quit carrying your cross? You want to quit denying yourself and following? You want to quit? I understand. And it's okay. You can quit. Just do it tomorrow, not today. And then tomorrow comes. You still want to quit? Yeah, I want to quit. All right, look. I get it. Just do it tomorrow. And we keep doing that. Just do it tomorrow. So look, if you want to quit, it's fine. Just don't quit today. And when tomorrow happens, don't quit today. Just keep putting it off. You know, we're really good at putting stuff off, right? Just put off quitting. I mean, we, we've got that down. At least I do. Okay, I'll delay one more day. I don't know how you did, Billy, but I did that with my dissertation for three years. I'm just going to put it off one more day. I just can't do any more reading or research. I just, that's how you stretch four years of education into eight. All right, I need to wrap this up. Christ formed. You want change in your kids? You want change in your spouse? You want change in whatever? This is the way it happens. Relationally, repetition, and resolve. Never to quit. You want to see Christ formed in your neighbor, that neighbor that you've been trying to share the gospel with? Just don't quit. Just keep on. Build a relationship. Repeat. Resolve. But what I find fascinating about this verse, this one little verse is the metaphor Paul chose to describe the process of Christ's formation, the process of discipleship, the process of the sanctification, the process of the Christian life that lasts our whole lifetime. He picked the metaphor to describe this. Okay, you, every, you understand what I mean? Discipleship. We're all, once we meet Christ, we're all in this journey of discipleship our whole life. The metaphor Paul used here is the most painful human experience that is in existence. I so wish the discipleship journey were not described by the most excruciatingly painful experience any human can ever have. Some of you are superheroes when it comes to pain toleration. That is not me. I'm pitiful. Paul describes this Christ formation with a word, with a phrase, with a, with a metaphor that I wish he hadn't have. He says, I'm again in the anguish of childbirth. Again, this is a single man who didn't have children. He didn't have a wife where he experienced it. And let me explain the difference in today, all right? Um, when my children were born, and they were all born in the Philippines, 
in the 80s, and um, well, one of them in the 90s, but in, in those days in the Philippines, they did not allow the dad to be in the delivery room. Thank God. Because I would have been dragged to the emergency room if I had been in there. When they told me they don't allow that, I'm going, oh, dang. But I mean, now they got dads in there helping the delivery. Like, are you getting a discount from the, from the doctor for doing that? I, I don't know if any doctors in here explain that to me. You get, you pay a full price because you're, you're cutting it, you're doing all this stuff. With no license whatsoever. Um... Some of you dads have been in the delivery room and watched your wife in the agony and the pain that's... Any, anybody have that? Some of you have PTSD from that. Um, even if you were there by her side, you don't understand the pain she was going through. You can't possibly understand it. But today, it's all sanitized. So what, what happens today, typically, unless... The dad's in there, getting in the way, um, helping, yeah. <laughs> They're in another room, and the room is closed off, and nobody's hearing what's going on. In Paul's day, 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire, um, there were a lot of people lived in tents mostly. Some had, you know, stone houses, but they would have windows, but no glass, and that's where the children were were birthed, and all the neighbors heard everything. Everybody heard the screaming. It was a regular thing in the village, and you knew when someone was giving birth, because you could hear it. You experienced it together. You didn't experience personally the pain, but you, like, that's, that's something different. We don't hear, most of us have never heard or even have any idea. And plus, they had no epidurals then. They had no pain meds. They, they didn't, okay, I'm done with this. Just, just inject me. I can't take it anymore. That's usually the dad saying, I can't take it anymore. Inject her. <laughs> just, just stop it. <laughs> or else to give it to me. <laughs> Paul chooses to describe Christian discipleship, the most painful concept that they could ever imagine. Some of you go, that sure explains my experience in small group. <laughs> okay, I wish they had told me that before they invited me. Change is painful. It really is. But it's worth it. You look in that baby's eye, you look in that, so it's worth it. So he says, I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul picked not only the most painful concept he could find, but one that could kill you. Maternal mortality rates are minuscule today. And that does, if you know someone who died giving birth, then it's horrible. And I don't want to diminish that in any way, but it's rare today, extremely rare. Most people, most of us, do not know anyone who has died giving birth. 
There are a few of you in this room who do, but for the most part, most of us, that's not something we ever even think about. Not so in the ancient world. Today, it's about 25 maternal, the the maternal mortality rate giving birth is about 25 per 100,000 births. 25 moms will die, mostly in the underdeveloped world, mostly in the poorest of the poor places. So here in Hawaii, it almost never happens. In their world, 2,000 years ago, it was about 2,500 moms would die for every 100,000 births. And so chances are they knew someone who died giving birth. Paul takes something that's painful that might kill you and says, this is what the Christian journey is like. This is what Christ's formation is like. This is what it is to be conformed into the image of Christ to see to this whole phrase he's saying everything we do is that Christ would be formed in you I say that not to scare you and to run you off and to say okay I don't, I don't want that so I'm, I'm going back to my old life the whole point of this text is hope that we don't change ourselves we don't try harder but as Christ is formed everything changes it's metamorphosis It's an internal to external change. So with that, our time is out, and I want to close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the promise of change. Thank you for the hope of change. And so, Lord, we hope for a change, not that a change that is painless, but a change that is miraculous and completely transformative. Thank you for the change so far, and we look forward to the future hope of being completely transformed into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.